Witness Statements in a Changing World, Part 1. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, I'm Philip Kuhn. I'm a commercial barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. This is the first part of a three-part series on witness statements and the ongoing reforms in the business and property courts in England. My co-presenters, and indeed they'll be taking the lead, are Johan Ho, who's a former solicitor and now a commercial barrister at 39 Essex, specializing in commercial construction and insolvency disputes. I'm joined also by Ruth Keating, who is a dual qualified English and Irish barrister and has a broad practice with a particular focus on commercial and construction disputes as well. As most of you will be aware, the process of drafting witness statements is incredibly time-consuming and often essential, um, no doubt because individuals are often reluctant to put pen to paper, in some cases unwilling. Um, we, will ask, we will have to ask ourselves in demanding times with the COVID pandemic and other financial pressures, whether the cost of preparing witness statements can be justified. And particularly in commercial disputes, we need to be mindful of the financial price of the time we're taking from key witnesses, especially at the senior end. Everyone on this podcast will have faced one of three, indeed in many cases all of these, practical problems. One which we've already touched on, witnesses who are reluctant and will resile from their statement if there are any issues in the drafting. And this often happens on the day of trial in the course of cross-examination, which is unfortunate to say the least. Um, the other problem is that a witness statement has to be true and complete. And um, no one wants to create a statement that is misleading or untruthful. However, there's obviously the commercial imperative of representing your client and presenting their evidence in the best possible light. And there's a real tension there. And thirdly, in some areas, including construction, there's a very delicate line between opinion and fact evidence. And as professional advisors, we have to be very mindful of that. The main focus of this series is on the very substantial reforms that are currently being proposed and seem imminent within the business and property courts in this jurisdiction. These reforms may well feed into arbitration practice as well because the problems are universal and many arbitrators are English trained and practicing lawyers. And the influence of these reforms may also spread to other parts of the Commonwealth, which still follow a very similar civil procedure rules. We'll cover in this series 10 key areas. First, identifying the problems that have led to the proposed reforms. Secondly, the policy behind the proposals for reform in draft practice direction 57AC, which we'll go into in some detail and is, a, is an evolving document. It isn't finalized yet. Thirdly, the statement of best practice. Fourthly, certificate of compliance. Fifthly, the delicate issue of having to list documents 
used in a witness statement or in preparing it. Six, the possibility of an enhanced statement of truth and the burden that that may put on solicitors in particular. Seventhly, alternative ways of deploying the evidence. Eight, naming and shaming. Nine, costs implications. And lastly, just as a sort of snippet and our own musings on the topic, potential implications for users of other courts and in international arbitration. With that, I turn to the first topic, which is identifying the problems that have led to the proposed reforms. Um, the current rules, which are familiar, primarily in CPR Part 35 and related the related practice direction and court guides, the commercial court guide, the chancery guide, and the TCC guide for present purposes. And I hand over to Ruth. Thanks, Philip, for that introduction. In terms of the rules that we have, those listening will be aware of them. I'm sure we're all um, well acquainted with CPR 35 and the relevant court guides. But as always, uh, the issue we face is implementing those rules in practice. In terms of a quick whistle-stop tour of the kinds of rules we'll all be aware of, we understand that the statement needs, and so far as practical, to be in the witness's own words. And of course, as we'll go on to, there are some difficulties in doing that where you have a lawyer effectively drafting a statement, but it's meant to be, as always, in the witness's own words. Philip has already alluded to one of the other key principles that causes a bit of difficulty in practice. And that's that the evidence has to be limited um, to the evidence the witness would give if they were in court themselves. And that's a real difficulty. It effectively stands in as evidence in chief. But as we'll get to, the content of that statement can change over time. In terms of what that statement should look like, it shouldn't have excessive reference to documents and it should be brief. We'll also all know that some courts are a little bit more sticklers for the rules than others. And some of them indeed even impose a limit, such as the commercial court, where there's a default 30-page limit for witness statements. But that does, of course, give us a theme that these statements are meant to be brief where possible. We're not meant to be writing war and peace. Looking then at the other requirements that we have for witness statements as a backdrop, where they're translated, they need to be accompanied by the date of translation and given some details on, on necessarily the process by which that statement was prepared, we're all aware of the negative consequences where witness gives false evidence, and indeed it's punishable as contempt of court. So, uh, of course, um, not something that we see in our everyday practices, but nonetheless something that very much looms large over the process of, of witness statements and, and the taking of witness statements. And all of that really underlines what, what is the kind of cherry on top of the cake in terms of a witness statement, that's the statement of truth. And the court can even direct uh, that no weight be given to a witness statement or it be inadmissible where that statement of truth is missing or indeed disallow the course of preparing a witness statement. So, Philip, that's just kind of for our listeners, a quick backdrop of the kinds of rules we'll all be familiar with, but rules that are very relevant when we come to consider these reforms which we're looking at. That's extremely helpful, Ruth. I think just by way of introduction, another aspect that's worth flagging, although the focus of this podcast series will be on the CPR rules, um, there are, as many listeners will know, the IBA rules on the taking of evidence 
in international arbitration now, about 10 years out of date, and also the Prague rules. Um, Johan, could you enlighten us on the IBA rules? Yes, Article 4.5 of the IBA rules provides the same basic requirements for witness statement. So it shall contain a statement regarding the present and past relationship with any, with any of the parties, full and detailed description of the facts, and the source of the witness's information as to those facts, a statement as to the language in which the witness statement was originally prepared, and the language in which the witness anticipates giving testimony at the hearing, and an affirmation of the truth of the witness statement. What the IBA rules does as well is allow for a witness statement to stand as to direct evidence only if, though, the parties agree or the arbitral tribunal orders this. And what about the Prague rules? So I think we, we see something similar there, Philip, to what Johan has outlined. Uh, the Prague rules, uh, the 2018 version, they're not prescriptive as to the content and form of witness statements, but they certainly contain some similar guidance to what Johan has just outlined there in the IBA. There seem to be three issues that underpin the proposed new approach in England and Wales. The, the first is an appreciation as a result of work in the medical and psychological fields that human memory is unreliable and many commercial court judges have made the very same point in recent years. The second point is um, the use of witness statements as a vehicle for opinion, argument and commentary. I think as an early point, just to sort of make clear what we are concerned with here, the position in applications, for example, for injunctive relief or search, search orders or disclosure, obviously are in a different position and solicitors often have to give statements like that themselves and are closer to argument. What we're concerned with is that sort of practice or evidence in trial witness statements. Uh, thirdly, outright dishonesty or things approaching that and potentially, but this comes down more to delivery and I think in recent years has become less pressing, is demeanour. Um, Johan, can you tell us a bit more about the sort of growing jurisprudence on human memory, memory and its fallibility? Yes, there has been a raft of cases in recent years addressing this. And in summary, there are three headline points from these cases. The first is that human memory is unreliable. We believe that our memories are more faithful than they are. And there are two common misconceptions here. The first, that the stronger and more vivid our feeling or experience of recollection, the more likely the recollection is to be accurate. Well, that's not true. The second, the more confident another person is in their recollection, the more likely that recollection is to be accurate. Also not true. The second headline point is that memory is not a mental record fixed at the time of experience of an event, which then fades more or less slowly over time. And what the recent scientific research has shown is that memories are fluid and malleable. They are constantly being rewritten whenever they are retrieved. 
The third headline point is that recent studies have shown that memory is particularly vulnerable to interference and alteration when a person is presented with new information or suggestions about an event, especially in circumstances where the memory is already weak due to the passage of time. And it is that which has particular vulnerability in the context of litigation. Thank you for that, Johan. Ruth, do you want to just expand on that final point because it, it's something that maybe we as lawyers don't appreciate enough but how does the litigation process affect witness evidence well the answer is that it has a powerful impact as johan has already highlighted there the process of memory itself is that it's being constantly rewritten and it's difficult to see a context in which that becomes even more prevalent than when we're preparing for litigation Naturally, witnesses will often have a stake in a particular version of events, and so some biases can, can clearly come to the fore. If we think about those kinds of things that a witness might have at stake, some of them are obvious and at the forefront, and some of them are a little more subtle. So, you know, thinking about them where a party is a, is a witness, there clearly is an overlap there in terms of interest. But there might even be something a little looser than that. There might be a tie of loyalty. And of course, many cases rely on employees and former employees giving evidence. And, and clearly, there's, there's a very strong tie there between those, those two parties. But finally, I suppose that the big thing on the litigation process as a whole is that there are subtle factors. And of course, there's a kind of allegiance that can build up um, in a litigation team, understandably. But what that can also mean is that there's a desire to assist, or at least not to prejudice, the party calling the witness or, or that party's lawyers. And I think that can often be in practice quite a powerful bias that can come to the fore. Thank you very much, Ruth. I think just sort of following on from that, I think this is completely borne out by the fact that in litigation and arbitration, speaking generally, very little weight is typically given to the recollection of witnesses, particularly when it comes to meetings and conversations. And it, it's often quite amusing to compare the, you know, the disparities between each side's case on what was said in these meetings and agreements that were reached on one side's case and the other side said there was not even a something approaching agreement. And I think we'll all be familiar with that. Um, and in practice, the consequence of that has been for judges to, you know, f f rely on the documents and draw the necessary inferences from those as to what is actually likely to have happened. Um, moving on then to a sort of second area of scrutiny, uh, that's the point on using witness statements for opinion, argument or commentary. Johan, can you give us a bit more detail on the cases? Yes, there have been a string of cases criticising witness statements that contain this sort of material. Parties have been criticised, sometimes in trenchant terms, for relying on witness statements that contain a recitation of facts of which the witness does not have any direct knowledge and simply based on documents the witness has read. Witness statements that advance arguments and make submissions, which might be expected of an advocate rather than a witness of fact and witness statements that give expert opinion evidence. And also, 
I mean, we, we hope this doesn't happen, but let's not forget the witnesses who just lie. And there are plenty of cases, especially in the insurance con- context, where the doctrine of fundamental dishonesty has been introduced to deal with that very issue. Uh, Roof, I think you've you've got some of those cases for us. Well, of course. I mean, there's nothing new about lying. It's certainly not a new phenomenon. And the case law definitely reflects that. We even have statements from people like Mr. Justice Smith going back to 2004 in the EPI case saying, you know, witnesses can regularly lie. And when that has to be written in a judgment, it certainly does show that it's possible. And it's something that we need to be live to when we are assisting or drafting a witness statement. But even as recently as looking at one of the cases from this year, National Bank Trust and Eurov, it was a uh, 2020 case in the High Court. You know, it had some very glamorous facts. It involved three majority shareholders and supervisory board members of a Russian bank. And the allegation was that they had knowingly falsified the bank's accounts and concealed bad debts. But there was also some commentary in the judgment on witness statements and witness evidence. Now, I do think looking at the judgment, when you see the word lie being said 33 times in a judgment, it does give a a pretty good indication that perhaps one or more of the witnesses might ultimately be misbelieved. But what the judge said in that case was Mr. Yurov's willingness to invent a story and lie on oath demonstrates that he is not a witness of truth and that his evidence can't be relied on. So I think there, Philip, we have quite a, a pithy summary, but nonetheless a reminder that it doesn't matter the scale of the litigation, whether that's in the county court or the high court, uh, witnesses can still very much be in the territory of lying on occasions, unfortunately. Yes, and I mean, just that, to add a personal anecdote, for a, a high court judge to say that as candidly, when in many cases that I've seen, witnesses seem to be lying, but the judge will be reluctant to make that finding is all the more telling. Um, our final topic on this segment is on demeanor. And that's a term that's been used as legal shorthands to refer to the appearance and behavior of a witness when giving oral evidence, or indeed in day-to-day language, just how someone is behaving or coming across. And it's obviously distinct from the content of what they're saying. The idea is that witnesses may have in their demeanor, in their manner, in hesitation, in nuance, or in other forms of expression, even just turning their eyelid or being a bit evasive in their posture, um, something that could affect their credibility. What's the what's the state of play on that roof? Is it still as important as it used to be in the olden days? Well, I mean, that's, that's a difficult one, Philip, and, and it's an interesting question because, of course, what you described there, I think we can all relate to that, looking at the witness's eye, looking at the way they might shuffle in their seat and that kind of thing. But ultimately, we have to look at what a judge might be thinking. And we do have the equal treatment bench book. And there is caution in that, in terms of letting judges overly rely on demeanor. Because of course, as you've said, the power of demeanor is that it is necessarily subjective. And so what the bench book warns against when we think about demeanor is thinking, people of course perceive words and behaviors of others in terms of cultural conventions. And they might be cultural conventions, which we're not familiar with. And of course, our outlook is based on our own knowledge and experience. And this might lead us 
to a misinterpretation or a failure to understand uh, someone else's perspective. And the final thing on that, Philip, is there's obviously a growing wealth of science and general understanding of the difficulties of evaluating credibility. And so, as always, it's human nature that demeanour will come into it. But I think we all need to exercise a little bit of scepticism about how much we can look into the crystal ball of someone else's mind uh, and think we know what they're thinking just because they shuffled in their seat or, or looked a little bit impatient. That's a very interesting point. And just to sort of close off this first episode, uh, as a personal experience, it's probably that judges higher up the food chain are more alive to this. But I think certainly also doing cases in the county courts, demeanor sometimes matters more there than we would let on. And it'd be interesting to see how much knowledge of this equal treatment bench book there is across all levels of the judiciary. Um, with that, On that riveting note, uh, we'll, we'll end this first episode and we hope you tune in for our next one. We'll be looking at the policy behind the proposed re, uh, pro uh, reforms and then the detail of Practice, practice Direction 57AC. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.